This is Space 101.1, LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage, exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to a summertime edition of Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell, and tonight we're going to revisit two interviews originally produced for the old Columbia Conversations podcast that I used to host for the Washington State Historical Society. A bit later on, we'll speak with author Amber Casali about her book, Hiking Washington's Fire Lookouts, which was published by the Mountaineers back in 2019. It's a how-to and a history with information about exploring and even camping inside of vintage and modern fire lookouts around the evergreen state. But first up, we meet Claire Manis-Hatler, whose late husband Manny discovered the remains of an ancient mastodon on the couple's property near Squim up on the Olympic Peninsula back in the late 1970s. It was really fun speaking with Claire Manis-Hatler. The occasion for our conversation back in 2019 was the fact that she had recently donated artifacts to the Washington State History Museum related to that mastodon and its discovery and how her family capitalized on it. It's, it was a really fun talking with her, and I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Claire Manis-Hatler. What is it that you found on your farm? Well, this was back in uh, August of 1977. My late husband, Emmanuel Manis, we called him Manny, decided to dig a pond down that we, we live on a, a farm of 16 acres at the time. The lower pasture was uh, marsh, marshy. So he, he decided to dig a pond down there. We had a few uh, uh, cows, and uh, we'd only lived here a couple of years. Well, he took us uh, back home down to the marsh um, and started to dig with a backhoe bucket a trench uh, around what would eventually be a pond. Um, he was digging about a few feet below, and the water table down there was only a few feet below the surface. So he started digging uh, deeper, about six feet with a bucket. He went about 100 feet with his trench, with the backhoe bucket. And up in the bucket, uh, with one of the bucket folds, it looked like a big log lying across the bucket, covered with mud. So he laid it aside on the bank, didn't get off the backhoe, took another shovel full, and another supposed log came up. had a big curve in it, and it was a little white at one end, and he said, hmm, that's not wood. And so he set it down on the ground, jumped off the back hoe, and wiped the mud off both of them and realized they were elephant tusks. Wow. And the two years he had lived here, um, mammoth tusks were, uh, it had been eroded out of the bluffs down near the Strait of Juan de Fuga near, near Squid. Mm. And, uh, there would be pictures in the paper and so forth, and that would be the end of it. So we, when he saw them, he, he knew what they were, and he assumed they were mammoth tusks. 
And uh, so we climbed back up in the, back, in the backhoe and uh, alerted me, started whistling. I was up at the house. It was a hot August day and I, um, near supper time, so I knew he was going to be quitting pretty soon. And uh, I went down to the site where he was digging uh, and said, you know, what do you want? You know, why can't you wait until you come up for supper? And he... Uh, he said, oh, he says, I found a couple of mammoth tusks. And I said, oh, boy, you've been in the sun too long. <laughs> I bet they're, they're cattle horns. And I started to turn around and, and leave, and he said, well, they're laying in the grass there. Take a look. And I took one look and came unglued and uh, told him, don't you, you know, dig another inch, get off the back and get out of there. And I ran for the phone, and I started phoning. <laughs> and eventually reached the archaeologists from Washington State University that were working at the Azette site out at Nia Bay, below Nia Bay. Yeah, because this is, you said this was 1977? This was August of 1977. Yeah, so you couldn't go to the Internet. You couldn't probably look up in the, you probably had to look in the white pages or the yellow pages. How did you you track somebody down that long ago? I'm I'm curious. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the, the, uh, the, I had to make quite a few phone calls, and uh, <laughs> I first called the science teacher in uh, the local high school, our local high school, Squim High School. My uh, younger son was a, a junior there, and uh, asked her, I said, you know, you must have come across uh, this kind of stuff, and she said, oh, yeah, she said, uh, I said, well, can you give me advice? We want to know more about it, the prehistoric elephant in our front yard. Uh, I not seen any information in the newspapers or anything else about it. Mm-hmm. It's just somebody finds a tusk or a, a tooth, and that's it. And she said, oh, great, you know, start, start making calls. <laughs> and all the, the, the best suggestion she said was keep these tusks wet. They've been, you know, because they were in a wet thing. She said, uh, put them in water or something, because when the children, you know, some, over the years that she had taught science, Children had brought in pieces of tusks and so forth and bones, and they would just actually just mostly tusks. Mm. And when they dry, they just kind of fall apart. So immediately we did that. In the meantime, I was calling, I called the University of Washington, and uh, it was August, and the receptionist said, well, you know, everybody's on vacation. (laughs) Uh, Later, to to, to be sorry, they said that. Um, Anyway, I I wanted to... uh, I had read about the the big out at Odisette site, and uh, and I thought, oh, they they should know what they're doing. That's who I want to get a hold of. Well, how do you get a hold of a uh, an archaeological site on the coast of Washington, a little town called Mia Bay? And this, you know, was what, I don't know how many miles south of Mia Bay. No phones, no no nothing like that. No cell phones. Um, I called our library, the main library in Port Angeles, and talked to the librarian and told her, "My, you know, we found two mammoths in our front yard, and we'd like to find uh, uh, some archaeologists that would give us some more information and come and see." Well, she said, "I'll, I'll find out if there's a phone number for them because they've been there for years." <laughs> And uh, in Nia Bay. And sure enough, she came back in a few minutes and she had the phone number of a uh, uh, 
in Mia Bay, where they were uh, that they used to treat the, the artifacts that they were removing from the Ozet site. And uh, I, in fact, Richard Doherty was in charge of that. In fact, he was a Washington State um, archaeological. He was the head of Washington State Archaeological Research Research Center at that time, and. Uh, and I uh, called, and uh, he wasn't there right now. He was with them at the site. He called back shortly after and said, oh, yes, I'm very interested, and uh, uh, I will come by in, in a day or two. He had business to do out there with some reporters, and uh, I will alert my assistants and other uh, archaeologists from, from Pullman. Well, I had never heard of WSU. We only lived there two years, and my older son was ready to go to the UW in the fall. So um, I said, well, I need all the information I can get, so I'll just, we'll, we'll wait for you. In the meantime, I had called the newspaper because they had put articles and pictures of mammoth tusks and so forth that the locals had found, and nothing more was said about it. And I, I said, is it still news around here? Uh <laughs> I wanted to find out more about this prehistoric elephant in our front yard. Um, so he's delighted to put the article in with a question mark under the picture of my husband with his tusk. Um, we, we would appreciate more, more information about this. Well, a local uh, gal who was a student of Dr. Dorothy's uh, at Pullman was in town with her family, and she called right away and came up and said, why don't you call the Washington State um, Office of Historic Preservation? Uh, Jeannie Welsh was the State Historic Preservation Officer, and she's an archaeologist. And I said, I didn't even know it existed. <laughs> and uh, made the call, and she was up here within hours in her camper and uh, she immediately looked into that trench, and she could see bones sticking out on the sidewall of, of the trench she had dug, and started because it was hot and dry summer, and they were being exposed to the hot air, and she started covering with wet rags, and that's the way it started. Huh. <laughs> and the uh, doctor, Dr. Doherty, showed up and uh, took a look and listening to. This, Jeannie Welsh uh, knew immediately this was something new, maybe a, a full uh, skeleton of a mammoth. Mm. We still find it a mammoth because there's no evidence that it wasn't a mammoth. And because of other finds around here, it indicated these tusks that, the, that are eroding out of the bluffs on the water um, would be uh, mammoth tusks because they found teeth. The, the indicator, if you're just finding a few bones of these ancient elephants. So um, he signaled his, his uh, Dr. Uh, Carl Gustafson was in Pullman. He's a zoologist has a, and, and works in the Department of Archaeology and Anthropology and told him to bring a, a, a equipment to start a wet dig in our front yard. <laughs> uh, with our permission, of course, right from the beginning, we said, you stay here as long as you want, um, but we don't feel that, that was 
we own this history or prehistory, um, and we certainly would like to know more about it, and we'd like you know, you to do whatever you can. So Dr. Gustafson uh, put together the equipment, and with a um, grad student, uh, showed up within a day or two, and they started to work with water because, like I say, it's a wet, it's a wet site. And uh, within a day or two, Dr. Gustafson found this broken piece of this animal's rib bone. And embedded in the rib bone was a bone point. Wow. Now, you know, standing back and saying, how did this piece of bone become embedded in this rib bone of this, this animal? Of course, at this point, it was still called the mammoth. They had it x-rayed over in Bellevue and so forth and found, yes, it penetrated the bone about three-quarters of an inch. It came to a point it was made of bone. Wow. Well, that was pretty exciting. Hmm. So it, it continued, and the next day, so, an object so just, just, but just to, I'm sorry, just to pause for a second. What that means is that some human had fashioned a spear tip out of a other bone and had hunted this animal. Right. Okay. Right. Wow, that is that's and, that's crazy. You know, eliminating all other natural possibilities. Um, here it was sitting in wet sediments that look like a, the sediments from a. Uh, that was, that was upon thousands of years ago. Hmm. Anyway, within a day or so, uh, as they were washing down the sediments, something started to appear, and it looked like at first like it was a oyster shell. Well, after carefully <laughs> uh, washing it down and removing it, they realized it was a tooth, wow. a very worn tooth, and it was not a mammoth tooth. It was a mastodon tooth. Now, the difference in these two Ice Age elephants, they both existed at the same time. They became extinct about 10,000 years ago. But there was a big, there two different species. The mammoth were grass eaters, like cows. They had different they had teeth, unlike our teeth. They were made, the teeth were made up of enamel, uh, pieces that ran vertically through the tooth, big tooth. They'd wear down that tooth eating, eating the grass because it came in contact with a lot of grit and gravel. they get another tooth uh, set. So a mammoth might get six or seven sets of teeth in a lifetime. Well, this mm. was not a mammoth tooth. It was a tooth very similar to our molars, a big uh, tooth uh, with the animal on the top and dentine inside and roots just like our teeth. But mastodon were brush eaters, like deer and elk. Hmm. So when they get a permanent baby set of teeth and a permanent set, when they were worn out, they were worn out. And this tooth was worn right down to the uh, gum line. Hmm. So then the archaeologists, they don't jump up and down much, but they were (laughs) really excited. And they, they said, well, we'd like to talk to you. And they said, this is the first, this is a very important archaeological site, probably the most important at that particular time in the world. And we have, what we have found here is the first direct evidence of man hunting mastodon on the North American continent. 
they had other evidence of mammoth uh, kill sites and so forth being butchered, but they never had that direct, the, the smoking gun type of evidence uh, about Mastodon. Hmm. So this, instead of coming here to remove maybe a skeleton of, uh, with all the bones of a, of a mammoth or a giant elephant um, and take it back to the university for studies, uh, this was something different. They had to, uh, and, and it would affect us. They said, we, number one, it's not going to be a few days or a few weeks we're here to dig this out. It will take months. It could be years. And you'll lose that portion of your property. And uh, people, and we have to contact the uh, media because this is an open science and we need the money to get grants and so forth to be able to have a, you know, have a, a field school and, and do this. And uh, so this alerts, you know, getting in the paper and so forth, alerts the politicians and so forth. <laughs> you know about that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, and so with our permission, because it's ground on private property, it's up to the owner to decide whether go away, cover it up, I don't want to be bothered, or let us do what we can. We can't compensate you for the loss of your land. We can't pay you for all the the uh, possibilities of people coming and climbing over your barbed wire fences. We're right on a, was a gravel road in the in the community south of Squim, and uh, easily uh, accessible by cars and people. And he said, once it gets in the newspaper, people will come. All the people that come out to the OZ site, which is where they have to hike seven miles out into the woods to the coast through the forest, uh, they'll be here in droves once it gets the newspaper. So they told us all the the bad side of it. And we said, we don't care. (laughs) The most important thing is that you have found something that's unbelievable uh, to a lot of people. And we want to know more, and we want to know what you're going to do, how you do it, and what it means. So don't look at us as some people sitting up at the house watching you do your thing down there. We want you to teach us what you're doing, and we want to know everything that you you know about uh, mastodons and uh, prehistoric man and so forth. And uh, they were delighted. They're teachers. That's what they do. Um and we said, no, do what you have to do. And Dr. Uh, Doherty suggested that um, they uh, that what we should do to protect our property and so we wouldn't be liable if somebody got tangled up in a barbed wire or so in the site. So he suggested uh, that they have a long driveway down to the, the street. The site itself is closer to the, the roadway. And... Uh, they could just put a gate up at the end of your driveway, put a sign out there saying, you, you know, you, the way to control it, just like the, the state parks and the national parks do, you have control. So on the sign, say, when you're, you, you, you should let people in because it's, like I say, it's a, an important site. And uh, so let people in at a certain hour. Uh, when we're here digging, which will be probably in the summer times with a field school, um, say open 10 to 
two or something like that and charge a dollar or two. This will turn around all the whoopee loos who really aren't interested in, <laughs> in archaeology. And this way, you can uh, protect yourself with liability insurance so that you won't lose your house or anything else. So, um, okay, okay. So Manny got to work that fall after they left. They left a, a two uh, students there to do uh, some small archaeology until it got too cold in the wintertime. But in the meantime, it was put the gate up right away, and it was closed until further notice, type of thing. <laughs> and uh, uh, Manny uh, turned our barn into a theater. He put, put posed the front, put doors in and in and out, built benches, built a big screen, and then put together a slide presentation using the slide, using photos that we had taken and, and Dr. Gustafson and Doherty had taken mm. to show just just what's found there. What? How did it? How did it happen? Did, did, uh, did Manny? Uh, did Manny have any kind he, of a background in in show business or in putting on shows or lectures okay. or what was his background? He was a machinist. <laughs> so where did he? Where did that come from? That 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 vision to turn the barn into a theater and put on a slideshow. We both agreed. We didn't want people to come up here, just look in the, the, the site and know nothing about it. Huh. We wanted to educate people to just, as we were being educated, That's what cool. did they do first? Uh, they put grids over the site, they measure exactly, they photograph everything they've changed, and this is the way they, they uh, as a wet site, they use water to excavate with. Hmm. Uh, all these all these things we didn't know, and we wanted if we were, anybody came up there, we wanted to know what they were going to see when we took them down to the site. That's cool. So they came up into that barn first, showed the slides with a voiceover. Manny made a, a, a tape along with it with the slide. <laughs> exactly what happened. This is the way we found it. This is what what the archaeologists are doing now. How you begin and so forth. It was about ten minutes presentation. Mm. It's still it's shown down in our local little history museum in Squim. So when we opened it, uh, the site, oh, and he made uh, move fences back so the cows were away from the site and away from an area that uh, had an uh, area for the people to park. And we rented porta potties and that sort of thing. So the, and we had some, the university gave us some cases, glue glass cases display cases to put some of the bones in. The tusks were put in, and um, I like to say a tusk tank. Actually, it was a stock tank, and they fit it in very nicely, and they, of course, in water. So they would come up to the barn and, and see the displays, and then I would show them the, um, the, the uh, slides presentation. Well, it all took about 10 or 15 minutes, and I'd answer any questions they had, and uh, then um, and he would take him down to the site, and he made a path, a fenced path, and, it, and he fenced around the, um, the site itself so people wouldn't fall into it. the uh, dig. And uh, so he would go down there, and he would uh, point different things out, and whoever was working at the site, whether it was Dr. Doherty or Dr. Gustafson or one of the grad students, would uh, answer questions, and they could see, and they stay there as long as they wanted. Hmm. Um wow. We did this from not, not, the first summer was 1978. The last summer was 1985. Hmm. So uh, every summer for what seven years, 
Hmm. Uh, we had over 50,000 people come through our front yard. Wow, that's crazy. And did you sell popcorn or souvenirs or anything? I made T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> and, now, and now Juliana wants to see Did you guys have a name for? Did you name your attraction something, or was it? I mean, what was it called? The, the, the official name is a Manus Mastodon site, uh, named after the, uh, the owner, Manus, M-A-N-I-S. And we right. were kind of sorry that, that my husband's father, who uh, was born in Crete and came over as a teenager, changed his name when he came to America. His name was Manasudakis, 13 letters, and it would look perfect with a Manasudakis Mastodon. Can you imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> what was your background? Did you have any sort of background that would have predicted that you guys would have put together this interpretive display and everything when, when this happened? Or when, what kind of work did you do? Well, let me see. The beginning was I was uh, I took engineering school, and my first job was the Carolina Power and Light Company. My husband was uh, his husband was going to school down there, and I was a substation design uh, uh, person. Okay. Fashion, more or less designed uh, stuff for for that, and then we moved up to his hometown in Rochester, New York, and I worked for um, a company that made. Um, well, anyway, I was a tool designer. Okay. I designed tools for uh, a company that made automatic gear cutting machines. And then we moved out to Palo Alto, California, <laughs> when Kodak opened a, a lab, a color lab there, and I worked for Hiller Helicopter as a uh, R&D design person okay. and engineering office, basically. All right, so you're an engineer, so you're used to putting together sort of systems, you're kind of designing things to, to accomplish tasks, like to put, like to kind of see, right. think things through. Okay, okay. <laughs> And so, so how many years were the UW, or excuse me, how many years were the um, Washington State University people there working on the Mastodon? Uh, eight years, from '77 wow. when it was when it was discovered to 1985. Wow. Closed it up. So how was, old? How old is that Mastodon? Did they did they ever pinpoint it? The official date, uh, and this was uh, um, proven in 2011 by. Uh, a, Archaeologist down in Texas, and the uh, with all the new scientific methods, the mm -hmm. DNR and so forth, um, the date comes thirteen thousand eight hundred years ago. Wow. And the significance of that, it's it's earlier than the the Clovis, so-called Clovis people. Mm -hmm. um, the Clovis, uh, the earliest date they have is I think uh, thirteen thousand. 300 years or anyway and so it's it's in contention the the people who believe that Clovis the Clovis points were the oldest and the people using them uh, uh, you know really question this so the, the fact now that these artifacts that Dr. Dustin uh, put together for the past 30 years that now belong to the the state museum um, will be available for research as soon as it will be there. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what's exciting to me is to think that, you know, you're, you have your house there, and you're outside Squim, and then just outside the window, you know, at some point in the past, 13,800 <laughs> years ago, somebody was, you know, 
chasing a mastodon or somebody was out there just trying to, you know, come up with food to feed themselves or feed their family or whatever 13,800 oh. years ago. That's just, that's mind-blowing to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is to me. And that's, <laughs> um, the, the, uh, Dr. Gustafson always, you know, saying, like, well, who are these people? And he, he figured they were, you know, hunters and gatherers or at least hunters and maybe a, a family, uh, say 24, 26 people just followed the big game animals. And apparently they were, it was right after the last ice age. These bones are found right on the glacial till, which is the material that was left behind as the ice retreated. Wow. So the ice here is three to 4,000 feet thick about, um, from about 16 to 20,000 years ago. So by about this time, it had retreated and then, uh, and left behind this glacial till. Um, this area has always been dry, and it's not a, we don't get a lot of precipitation. So there was not, uh, when this animal died, uh, there were no forests around here at that time. It was just, on, uh, you know, they found seeds and pollen. It's like a peek into the past. It's just not about an ancient mastodon pictured. Did... It, they found evidence of bison, and a, uh, a bison, prehistoric bison, larger than the American bison of today, hmm. uh, and uh, other little animals. I was hoping they'd find something exciting like a, a saber-toothed tiger, but that wasn't, uh, no, <laughs> they didn't. Was the thought that the mastodon that was hunted, did it? Did the, the thought that the humans actually... Um, Butchered it, or did it get away and die on its own? Did they ever determine that? Oh, yeah, by the way. The animal fell. They don't know how he died. He was wounded. He had that spear point. It like, oh, didn't kill him. Okay. Not that spear point in that rimble. He was an oil fellow. His teeth were just about worn out. Yeah. He had a lot of arthritis and osteoporosis. And I really shouldn't say this. And no, wait, are, you, are you talking about the mastodon, or are you talking about your husband now? Ha <laughs> ha, just right. kidding. <laughs> Yeah, I like the rest of it. <laughs> anyway, he, he, if he was sick, of course, he was wounded, he came down to this pond, and uh, like six, six animals too, and he either fell and died, or he was finished off. But the bones of his left side were laying on the bottom, you know, on the bottom surface on the glacial till in pretty good shape, except where the mess, except where the backhoe went through some of them. Mm. And, uh, and they had forgiven Manny for that. But yeah. uh, the other bones were missing, the, the bones from his right side. If the animal became, uh, those bones should have fallen right on top of the left side. And then they, as they excavated away from that trench, they started finding butchered pieces of bones. Not all the bones, but many pieces of, of butchered bones and uh, uh, other evidence that, yes, indeed, he was butchered. Wow. Um, so That's... They, they figured out he they had removed the tusks from the head and and uh, turned the head, oh, removed the head, and then broke, broke into the head probably to get the brain. Wow. So, was in the so uh, yes, and the brain in the case. Did they find any other um, tools or other evidence uh, that the humans left behind? That they found uh, a few flake stones. The stone in this area, especially went before anybody did any trading, is really lousy. It's a poor basalt, and mm. it makes a, a poor tool. Um, so they used bone. The bone was actually stronger oh. than the, the local stone. 
and they found a, a couple of pieces of mastodon bone from a, probably a previous kill. DNA proved it wasn't from the same animal. And it's, you know, flaked and shown like a scraper. It could scrape the, the, the flesh off it. Hmm. And so a couple of uh, bone uh, instruments. Um, yeah, the, and all of these little artifacts are now in the museum in, uh, in Tacoma now. And, and ooh, that, uh, Dr. Gustafson went through this for 30 years. All the material that he removed from the site that looked uh, like they were uh, butchered or so forth. So all this evidence will be, be available now. I haven't seen it. We've, we've had the, the boxes full of all his material. He died two years ago, so mm. we've had it right here until I could uh, put it in a safe place in the state of wow. museum. Um, that it, is great. Uh, it will tell the tale. And, uh, yeah, that's so, it's, uh, it's so generous of you, number one. I mean, it's just it's such a great, and it's almost happenstance that your husband found the Mastodon in the first place. And that you guys were both so receptive to the idea of using this to educate yourselves and then sharing that with the people who came. And then I just love the idea of you guys building your own interpretive center in the barn. <laughs> something about that that that's just that's like quintessentially something about that that's sort of American to me, which I love. It's just that sense of like, here it is. Here's this great opportunity to kind of put on a show, but also edify people at the same time. And then now for these artifacts to come to the museum is just really cool. That's really generous of you guys. And I love... I love the big picture thinking you guys seem to have always had. That's awesome. Well, you know, it, it was a, a gift, a wonderful gift, a gift to the world. Yeah. And if we could, you know, uh, make people understand how important uh, the past is, especially, uh, and well, yeah, we're always thinking today and tomorrow, and uh, so so little about the past. Um, yeah, it was a wonderful opportunity to educate people. We felt like we were teachers. In fact, Manny did teach uh, uh, when we lived in California. He taught uh, machine tool technology, so he was basically a teacher and always teaching our, our, our sons what to do. And yes, it, uh, how, how, it was a great opportunity. <laughs> how did your How did your sons feel about the whole thing? Having people coming to the house and the the barn with the slideshow and everything. They were, you know, in the beginning they were delighted. Uh, my one son was up in Alaska fishing, um, and then when he came back, he was uh, really excited. And my other son, uh, like I say, he was ready to go to school over at the University of Washington, <laughs> and he uh, uh, he was entering the school of geology, so it was like having a field school in the tri Wow. Um, but, uh, yeah, they were as excited as we were, and uh, it's interested. Uh, yeah. I mean, oh, I think, you know, people probably find things in their yards every day, but it sounds like you guys probably uh, hit the jackpot. Now, did you ever get a chance to build a pond someplace else on the property? Oh, yes. We, we, we had 16 acres, <clears throat> and uh, so to the west, uh, Manny dug another pond, and... Uh, there were two eight-acre parcels, and the western parcel was a pond. We sold the buy a sailboat <laughs> in 1989. <laughs> and uh, but, uh, when he had that one, when he dug that, he was very careful to go through all the sediments and found nothing. <laughs> I and bet. They, you know, they had taken uh, uh, samples of the, the core samples all over our property to, to make sure what uh, 
that there wasn't any other thing. But mm. directly around that pond, they found another evidence of another mastodon, uh, actually three or four, wow. uh, just small evidence of a tooth, a broken tooth or uh, the, a few other bones. At probably at a uh, either earlier, uh, a little later date than that. Yeah, wow. What should I say? Earlier date. Well, that's amazing. Claire Manis Hadler, what a cool story. I really, I'm really glad that it was your family that found that mastodon and uh, that you shared it with everybody. It's just, it's wonderful. It is everybody. Yep. Thank you so much. She was really fun to talk to. I'm Felix Bunnell, and you're listening to a summertime edition of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM, streaming at space101fm.org, all from the historic Magnuson Park at the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station on the shores of Lake Washington. Uh, that Claire Manis Sadler interview originally was recorded in 2019 for the old Columbia Conversations podcast, which I used to produce for the Washington State Historical Society. We'll be right back with more from the Pacific Northwest on Cascade of History. To learn more about Space 101.1, visit our website at space101fm.org. Once you're there, you can listen to the live stream and share it with your friends far and wide. See a program calendar, check out the real-time playlist, or even donate to our nonprofit all-volunteer radio station, Space 101.1 FM from Historic Magnuson Park, and streaming live at space101fm.org. Come aboard. It's time for more Cascade of History with Felix Bunnell. Now, coming up next, we're going to dip back into the archives for a conversation with author Amber Casali. She put together a pretty cool book back in 2019, and I'm 99% sure it's still in print. It's called Hiking Washington's Fire Lookouts. It's a guide not just to the history of those different fire lookouts, but how you can actually visit them and camp in them etiquette, that sort of stuff, all those kinds of towers which exist all around the Evergreen State. My question right off the bat, because I love fire lookouts, I love Northwest history, and there's something about, I don't know whether it's like railroad trains or lighthouses, why do you think people are attracted to fire lookouts? Yeah, I think that it is the the juxtaposition of um, this this cabin, this um, this cozy place on top of a mountain where a person lives for a short period of the year kind of combined with the, the wilderness setting and, you know, the grueling hike to get there. It's just such a, such a unique, um, such a unique setting of the, the man, the man-made structure and purpose within the wilderness. Yeah. And I haven't ever, I've never been hiking and stumbled across one of these things, but I imagine that must happen sometimes. But how did you decide to write this book or how did the book come together? Yeah, um, I had been to a handful. <clears throat> excuse me, I've been to a handful of of lookouts in Washington, and and just really loved them. They just really struck me as as special places. And I was an avid hiker and a professional writer. <laughs> and um, I happened to meet the the editor in chief of the of the Mountaineers books, and it had been in the back of my mind. Um, I had noticed there was no there was no book that covered um, hiking to Washington fire lookouts. And I'd recently gotten a, you know, like a hiking <clears throat> hot springs book. And so I thought, oh, that would be, would be really neat if that book existed. And then I was like, wait a minute, I'm an avid hiker and a writer. <laughs> I should write that book. So um, it kind of just, just all came together. Yeah, And it's a beautiful book. Did you take a lot of the photographs in there as well? I did. I took all the photos. Wow. It's great stuff. 
Thank you. Yeah, that was it was really fun. And I did about half of the hikes on my own and about half with friends and family. So just logistically, it, you know, it made sense that I take photos um, while I was out there. Yeah. And um, in terms of this might be a dumb question, but why do we have so many fire lookouts in in the northwest? Yeah, well, we are in a fire prone area. And so we do have a lot in in Washington, also in um, Idaho and Montana. So at the time in the early part of the century, um, as you know, it was, it was clear we were having some um, very catastrophic fires. There was a, um, a huge fire in the Northwest in 1910, and I think it it was just becoming um, more more prominent on the on the national um, and regional radar that uh, forest fires were going to have a big impact on um, on the nearby human populations and structures, and that we needed a way to to spot them um, as soon as possible and report them and try to minimize um, damage as much as possible. Yeah, and it's it's amazing the number that I think was it something like there were six hundred or there were, there were several more at some point there were many more of these than currently exist now, right? Exactly. I had I had read between five and six hundred, and then um, recently um, confirmed it was more around the high six hundred six hundred. And eighty something, I believe, yeah. just in Washington State. So yes, very, um, very popular and and common at the height of their use. And I know during World War II they were put into use for war purposes. Yeah, that was a um, that was definitely unique use, um, just for I, I believe just a year or two. Um, so most of the ones that are still, you know, that still exist today were built in the early '30s. So 10 years later, when the U.S. entered World War II, um, yeah, they were used briefly as part of the aircraft warning service. So um, instead of instead of just staffing them in the fire season to watch for fires, they were staffed actually year-round, um, I think. And I, again, I think it was just um, like 1942 to 43 or 44. Um, so just for a year or two, um, year-round to watch for, for um, enemy aircraft. One of the things that in in reading your book, the part that intrigued me, or one of the parts that intrigued me, was that you know there's several that you can reserve in advance to actually camp in or sleep in overnight if you're on a hike, but then there's many that are sort of first come first served, and I was wondering, I mean, how early in the day do you have to get there to stake it out, and how do you know that it's staked out? Once you, it seems like there might be potential awkwardness out in the woods if if you if you come up against one of these that you want to stay in and somebody's already there or someone gets there just after you. Yes, absolutely. This is a this is a really good question. Um, so yeah, right now there are only two that um, they covered in the book that are available um, for rental in advance through Recreation.gov, and that way you know you put it online, you get the um, you know a key or a code from the from the ranger station, you know that, that is yours for the night. Um, and then a handful that are available on first come first serve basis. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of um, there's a little bit of nuance to to the culture around it, I'd say, and it it does vary a little bit by lookout. So, for example, there are ones that are just um, extremely popular. Somewhere like Mount Pilchuck, um, you do have people stay overnight, and that one is um, just a few miles hike in. It's pretty close to Seattle. That one will always um, there's no sense of first come first serve. <laughs> Whoever shows up there, you know, I've seen. I've seen eight people up there um, from different parties sleeping at a time. Oh, wow. There, um, there's enough room for eight people to sleep inside and not, like, get each other's um, That'd be including outside on the catwalk. So um, okay. I've seen most most of them that have 
that are available for overnight. They do have a bed um, platform that you could put your, some have a mattress, some don't. You could bring your sleeping bag and sleeping pad. Um, Mount Hiltrek does not have a bed platform, but I've seen hammocks strung up in there and then people kind of sleeping around the catwalk, especially during, um, you know, the meteor shower um, oh. season. And so once like that, um, in addition, Hidden Lake Lookout, which is um, also very popular, um, those ones, it's a little, it's, it's more likely that you will, that you will um, be encountering other, other people as well. Mm-hmm. And then apart from that, you know, I think there is a sort of, um, I personally think that there, there's kind of should be an adherence to that, um, that idea of first come first serve. And so like you're, like you're asking, you know, how do you know, um, often as you're going up to a lookout, um, you know, and people are coming down and they see that you have, you know, an overnight backpack instead of a day pack, um, you know, they might say, Hey, you know, there's already two people in the lookout planning to stay overnight because they got there and they chatted. Um, so you do often on your way up, have a sense of if there's already people there or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, it, it does really vary. I've been, um, you know, I've, gotten to places by early afternoon and someone was already a lookout for the, you know, planning to stay there that night. And I've also been places where, um, where there wasn't anyone. It just really, just really depends. And so my, my advice is to not go expecting to stay overnight. So for example, like I will always bring a tent and, um, if, um, you know, if a bear canister is required in that area, I'll bring a bear canister, you know, in case I'm not going to be sleeping in the lookout for the night. So I think just sort of being prepared, but, um, for anything that might happen and then letting it be a pleasant surprise. If you, if you do stay overnight, then, um, kind of works out for everybody. Um, you know, that said, some people, some people are okay with, you know, bunking with, um, (laughs) you know, with multiple parties in there. And some people do ask to arrive and say, you know, Hey, can, you know, can, can I join you guys? And that's sort of a, I'd say a personal, a personal style um, approach. Only in the Northwest would there have to be a fire lookout etiquette code for for (laughs) camping out in a historic fire lookout. I mean, what I, what I love about your book is how it highlights these places you can actually hike to and see because so much, so much history is abstract or it's old black and white photographs in a book or online or something or a, a podcast like this. But the fact you can actually you know, just march up and down a trail and find places where these lookouts are still there and they represent these great eras of, of local history is, is really cool. Um, now, the, the history in your book is, is great for the individual lookouts and the, the general story you tell in the beginning. Do some of these lookouts actually even have like interpretive panels or, or more information once you get there? Is there history you can learn from actually visiting the individual sites? They sure do, yeah, and it, it really does vary by lookout. So, you know, some won't have any, but some have just incredible um, background information. I remember at, um, at a Burley lookout in the South Cascades had, um, you know, kind of information packets with photos and, um, you know, data about when the structure had last been restored and who was involved. Um, Mount Pilchick has wonderful, you know, plaques and, um, you know, it will show what joining peaks you're looking at and timelines. Um, so all sorts of, um, yeah, different displays. Slate Peak in the North Cascades also has um, kind of outside of the building. You can't actually go in the structure, but it has um, really neat plaques showing, like, the horizon around there. So, yeah, a, a really nice um, really nice mix of a different amount of information. And 
for the ones that are um, maintained by by citizen groups or by volunteers, there's often information inside about um, who to contact in case you want to get involved or be part of um, a work party or a website you can visit. So, yeah, definitely valuable information inside. And I was shocked to learn that there's actually some that are still staffed during the summer months by actual fire watchers. Yeah, yeah, I believe that there are six um, of, of the ones I covered um, in the book, uh, which is 44, and that's the basically the western half of, of Washington um, from Highway 97 um, west. So, so I don't want to speak for all of Washington, but yeah. the ones that I visited um, six were staffed, and um, and some of those staffed by by a very long time experienced lookout staff who have been doing it for you know 10 to 25 years. And then I also met um, a couple of lookout staff that that was their first their first summer doing it. So um, it runs runs the gamut, and and everyone I met was just um, a wealth of knowledge. Very happy to share their experience and their um, their passion for fire lookouts. And um, yeah, and just hearing what their day to day like. Um, like you said, um, you know, to to know that that. The, the fire spotting was happening um, <clears throat> back in the early part of the century, but then to be able to correlate that with our own firsthand experience today, and especially being able to to talk to someone who's who's still doing that, is is a really neat experience. Yeah, and I think there was etiquette too about visiting during business hours and maybe bringing a present and all that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, especially um, in the early part of the century, um, you know, food and your rations for the summer, it was. It was very limited and very defined. Um, oftentimes, you might pack in everything that you need for the summer, um, you know, on a pack mule and on your own back, and that was it for the summer. I mean, that was like, <laughs> you know, your food was very rationed. Um, in some places that were a little more accessible, there might be, you know, one or two or three resupplies throughout the summer. Um, but if you're coming, you're coming in the week for the weekend for the day as a as a day hiker it's really a wonderful gesture to bring um to bring the things that the lookout stuff might be missing out there for months at a time so um fresh fruits and vegetables were very welcome you know any kind of um treat sweet treat um so it's just kind of a good um you know a good goodwill gesture for um their service and their um and their hard work out there and so that carries over today. If you if you go to one that you know is staffed, um, always a nice gesture, and and to remember that the staff, uh, you know, they're they're working any day that they're there. They're probably on the clock because on the days they're off, um, they will often you know go out um, and leave the lookout. So they might be on for five days and off for two days. So if they're there, they're working. So um, I believe their working hours are 9:30 to 6. And so you know just just keep in mind that. They're on the clock, and and this is their home for the summer. And it it sounds like when they recruit people to do this work, that they they understand that the big part of their job is this sort of interpretive role, being able to you know talk to visitors and people you know not just like shoo people away, but part of the job is kind of being ambas- being an ambassador for you know the organization or the you know the whole what they're trying to get done. So it sounds like a great fit. Um, Absolutely. And is there you know. I know some of the people listening to this would probably want to just be able to drive to a lookout and be able to walk a short distance. Is there any in your book that are sort of really super easy to get to for someone who doesn't think of themselves as much of a hiker? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I use the term hike <laughs> somewhat loosely. Um, so I defined hike as anything that you potentially could walk to. 
Um, and so the shortest hike in the book um, is two-thirds of a mile. So it's actually just a third of a mile um, each way. Wow. And these these days, um, for a lot of the lookouts, there are um, there's a Forest Service road that goes all the way to the lookout, but there's a gate um, at some point along the road. And so sometimes that gate is open. So there are many that you can drive straight to, literally mm-hmm. to the to the base of the lookout. Um, but if it's um, the shoulder season, or if it's um, if the if the staff person is you know, has their day, their day off, or for whatever reason, that gate might be closed. And so um, for a lot of these hikes, I've started the description at the gate, assuming that um, you know you can't you can't assume the gate will be open. Mm-hmm. So um, so you might be doing a road walk that will range from a third of a mile to maybe two miles. So it's nice short walks, and some of them you can drive directly to. Some of them that I've described the hike um, option, for example, Mount Constitution on Orcas Island um, is in Moran State Park, and there is a really um, a really nice trail um, you can take up there, or you can drive straight to the summit. So uh, my goal was to yeah provide as much information so that the reader could sort of make a decision about um, what kind of um, hike, walk, or drive uh, they want to have. Yeah, like the, I mean, the the sort of cliche classic hike to the Jack Kerouac, what Desolation Peak one, that's, I mean, the way you describe the two options in the book there, I mean, that's that's a serious, that's a backpacking trip. That's like a mission. That's not a just a kind of a day hike sort of thing. Yeah, and that one is um, is very remote. That is sort of one of the one of the hardest to get to. I believe it's um, 40, almost 46 miles round trip um, <laughs> if you go completely by land. And, and I took three days, a three-day backpacking trip for that one. Um, Or you can go by um, boat a lot of the way on, on Ross Lake, but that does, um, does cost a bit, I believe um, over a hundred dollars for that ride. So either, either way um, (laughs) it's, it's a haul to get there, but really, really worth it. It, it's amazing how much that, you know, the fact that Jack Kerouac spent that summer there back in the 1950s and wrote about it in a couple different books that he published. I feel like that, that one particular summer and that one particular guy is responsible for these lookouts still kind of capturing people's imaginations, you know, so much 50, 60 years later. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, is, was that one worth the hike to see the Jack Kerouac one? Absolutely. I mean, I, I am partial to the North Cascades. Um, it's a really stunning view with the, um, with the Ross Lake right below. So, and you're right by the Canadian border, and that one actually is one of the ones that's still staffed. And um, I've been to that one twice, and unfortunately missed the lookout staff both times. But um, also a wonderful experience if you get to get to chat with with that staff. So I think if for anyone who is up for making that that kind of trek, absolutely worth it. And now it's fall and winter's going to be here before we know it. Um, I know there's probably some of these shelters or, or these lookouts are off limits in the winter season. Are there any that are accessible year round? So a lot of them, um, if they're if they're open to the public, they do remain open in the winter. The um, the issue is just with going up, you know, this a steep slope. A lot of these, are, you know, are a bit of a, a a bit of a haul to get there, a bit of a steep climb, even if it's just over a few miles. Um, so it's really knowing avalanche danger in that area. Um, and so, um, yeah, if there's, if there's one that, you know, someone's interested in, I would say just, you know, looking into the winter conditions on a, on a case by case basis, but absolutely some of them are, um, are accessible in the winter time. Got it. Well, it's really nice talking to you. It's a wonderful book. Amber Casali, thank you so much. 
Thank you. I'm Felix Bennell, and you're listening to a summertime edition of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM, streaming at space101fm.org from historic Magnuson Park at the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station. Amber Casali's book is called Hiking Washington's Fire Lookouts, and it was published back in 2019 by Mountaineers. It's got great stuff in it, including a bunch of maps and a lot of cool photographs that the author took as well. Uh, both of tonight's interviews with Claire Manis Hatler and with Amber Casali are from the archives of Columbia Conversations. That archive includes about 33 episodes focused uh, mostly on history in the state of Washington. And you can get all of them at uh, SoundCloud or Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're subscribed already to Cascade of History, they're actually included in the back catalog. So if you're if you're there already, just scroll back. Go where you normally go to Cascade of History and scroll back and find these 33 episodes of Columbia Conversations 2. And don't forget, if you haven't done so already, please be sure and visit space101fm.org for information about all the programs on the biggest little radio station in the Pacific Northwest. As we always say, Space 101.1 FM is volunteer-powered. But we do count on contributions from listeners to keep the lights on and all the gear running. If you're already a supporter, thank you very much for for helping the station stay on the air. If you'd like to become a supporter, just go to space101fm.org, and it's really easy to make a contribution. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Pacific time, I'm Felix Bennell for Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM at Sandpoint Magnuson Park. Good night. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it. Watch it. That's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.